turn to the book of Mark. I'm going to begin this morning by actually answering an email because the question that was asked was such a good question that I'm sure other people have had the same question. Last week, we talked about the rich young ruler and Jesus' interaction with him. And there's one particular sentence, verse 20, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Verse 21 says, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. So the email was asking me, knowing what we know about God's sovereignty, knowing what we know about God's love, how could Jesus have loved this man and then told him what he lacked and let the man walk away? It's a very good question. I think the answer is one of two things. The first is, you'll notice that it actually says that he looked on him with love. In other words, the look itself was a kind or loving gesture toward this man. Not that Jesus had some kind of deep abiding agapao love for the man himself, but that he took pity on him, that he saw that the man was trying to keep the commandments, was doing his best to keep up with everything that Moses had said, and he wanted to know, good teacher, what should I do? I want to do something. And Jesus looked at him in compassion. Now that takes us to number two. I think the second way that we can understand this, Mark has already told us that Jesus fed 4,000. Jesus fed 5,000. That's just men plus women and children. Could be as many as 10, 15,000 people that he fed with a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. And yet we have to assume that not all of them were saved by that enterprise by Jesus in feeding them. But we know from Mark's own writing that the reason that Jesus did that was that it was late in the day and they were outside the city and he felt compassion for them. So I think that story tells us something that perhaps we don't give enough credence to. It tells us something about Jesus' personality. It tells us that Jesus took pity on people, that he had compassion for people, and that even when he looked at people who were trying hard, he sometimes would answer them honestly because, I don't mean sometimes he answered honestly, I mean sometimes he gave them those honest answers because he was having compassion on them. It was a loving thing he was doing, even if it didn't ultimately save their souls, even though he would feed them food, even though he would give them fish, even though God would say things like, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so I think Jesus is just demonstrating that character of God, that compassion of God in the fact that he looked at the man and then gave him an honest answer. Sell everything you have. Come and follow me. And then the man's face fell and he found that he couldn't do it. The man's reaction doesn't lessen the genuine love and compassion of Jesus in telling the man the truth. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, there. Now I don't have to type that email. 
we're going to start today in verse 32. Let me see if I can set it up for you. Mark has been giving us themes. If you've been paying attention to the things that Mark is emphasizing under Peter's tutelage, there are certain things that he just really wants to drive home. Like, for instance, the next thing we're going to read is Jesus saying yet again, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And they were actually on their way there at this point, going up to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, and I'm going to be turned over, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be killed, and in three days I'll rise again. This is not the first time Jesus has brought this up. But you will notice that Jesus keeps saying it with clarity. He's not using parables. He's not using figures of speech. There are no metaphors here. There's nothing to interpret. He's just saying to them plainly and simply, we're going to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'm going to be killed. The second theme we see is they don't get it. Mark keeps telling us, and they didn't understand. No matter how clearly Jesus said to them, this is what's going to happen, they just couldn't understand it. But the third theme that we're going to see this morning, that we have seen very consistently in the book of Mark, is that while the disciples are not understanding Jesus explaining what he's about to do, that he's going to go fulfill scripture, that he's going to do everything the prophet said about him, that he's going to go accomplish his own death and his own life, while they're not understanding any of that, what they are arguing about nonstop continually is which one of them is most important. He's most important. What he's about to do is most important. Without his death, burial, and resurrection, nobody gets saved. That is the most important event to ever take place in the history of planet Earth. They are going to be right there at the fulcrum of world history. He is explaining it to them. This is what's going to happen. They could stay there and be eyewitnesses to the actual events that are happening, but they can't see any of that because they're really concerned about who's the most important, which one of them is going to be lifted up in the kingdom to come, And John and James, the sons of thunder, are going to come to Jesus and say, here's the deal. Um, We're thinking when you come into your kingdom and you're on that glorious throne thing, because they're still thinking kingdom, physical kingdom, kingdom for Israel, earthly kingdom. Make sure that we get the chief seats. Make sure that one of us gets to sit on your right side and one gets to sit on your left side. And Matthew tells us, that they, you'll pardon me saying this, the little weasels, didn't even have the nerve to go to Jesus themselves. They sent mom. They sent their mother to go ask Jesus, hey, can my sons have the chief seats in your kingdom? See, that is kind of weaselly, isn't it? Plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. Really, did mom do that? I had no idea. So, once again, Jesus is going to return to a theme that he brings up time and time again. When they were walking together and he was explaining that he was going to die, 
Previously, they were arguing about who was going to be greatest, and Jesus had to say, by bringing a child to himself, he had to say, look, you have to be like one of these children. You have to serve each other. The one that's greatest in the kingdom is going to be the least in the kingdom, the one who is serving the others. Well, he's going to go back to that theme again, and he's going to say to them, if you want to be great, if you want chief seats, take the low seat. If you want to be great in the kingdom, then serve one another. It's the exact same theology that is picked up in Philippians 2 and that Paul would write about. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ, who though he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, nevertheless made of himself no reputation, took on himself the form of a servant, suffered all the way to the cross, And then Paul says, now that's your example. Knowing that's your example, don't think on your own things. Think on the things of others. Consider every man is better than yourself. Well, that theology is bedrock Christian theology. It comes from Jesus. It's repeated by Paul. It is the very heart and core of how it is that Christians are supposed to live together here on planet Earth. It's part and parcel of what Jesus said by your love for each other, by your sacrifice for one another. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. Now, is it worth pointing out that far too much of modern Christianity seems to be about lifting up people, about making celebrities, about raising one person up above other people? Jesus said so clearly and so constantly And so repetitively that even the shortest of the four Gospels includes it over and over thematically that no Christian is above any other Christian. Nobody has authority over others. And in fact, Jesus is going to say, you're acting like the unbelievers. You're acting like the Gentiles. They rule over each other. You're to serve each other. And Jesus is again going to use himself as the example and say, look, I'm son of man. I'm here from God. I'm the very son of God. I left the throne room of eternity and I came here to the planet not to be served, but to serve you. Well, with that as an example, how ought we treat one another? How should we respond to one another? We certainly shouldn't start thinking, well, I'm the important one. Arms all akimbo. I'm the important one. Pay attention to me. So let's start reading. We're in Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, and they were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a hill. Jerusalem is actually lifted up. No matter where you are, if you're heading for Jerusalem, north, south, east, west, well, probably not west because you'd be in the water. But if you're heading toward Jerusalem, you're, you're heading up. So sure enough, they are going up to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking on ahead of them. Now remember that he's just told them when they have asked the question, who can be saved? He has just told them that the things that are impossible with human beings are possible with God. So salvation is always a matter of God doing the impossible. And then he has said there are many who are first that are going to be last, the last are going to be first. And so because of that, we read, and they were amazed. 
In other words, they're kind of dumbfounded. The things that he's saying are turning their thoughts, their religion, their society upside down. They live in a society where it's the wealthy, the well-to-do that are the important ones. And Jesus says things like, it's as difficult for a wealthy man to get into heaven as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Well, that's pretty amazing because they've always been taught it is the religious leaders. It is the powerful ones. It is the rich ones. It is the upper class. Those are the good ones. The lower ones, the proletariat, the slaves, those are the dregs of the earth. And Jesus is saying the last are going to be first. Those that are first are going to be last. So they're amazed by it. They're dumbfounded by it. And those who were following were fearful. In other words, they were overwhelmed by him. They were awestruck by him. Not scared of him, they're following him. But they're just absolutely in awe at this point. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles. This is unthinkable to them. He's the Messiah. He's even identifying himself as the Son of Man, some of the most important messianic nomenclature in the Bible. It's the Son of Man that stands before God in Daniel's prophecies. He's the one who's going to set up the kingdom of stone that's never going to be demolished. And so they're waiting for him to set up the kingdom. They've seen him do these miracles. He's he's making lame people walk. and He's giving people bread. He's feeding thousands at a time. And he's shutting down the Pharisees. So they're thinking, well, then he's going to throw off the yoke of Rome And he's going to establish the kingdom, which is why they want the chief seats on the right and the left of his throne. They think he's going to set up the physical kingdom, the physical nation, right then, right there. And they're very excited about that idea when he says to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to Gentiles. I'm going to be killed. You can imagine that they're going, no, no, that's not the plan. The plan is you do the kingdom. We have the prophecies. We know what's written about you. You're supposed to be the Messiah that sets up the kingdom. You've proven that you're the Messiah, and you're even calling yourself son of man. That's really important. And yet he says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him, the son of man, to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. That's a really bad list. And yet every bit of it happened. Even down to the details. Even down to they're going to spit on me. They were spitting on him while he dragged his cross down the dusty roads of Jerusalem to go outside the city to the place of the skull. They mocked him, they spit on him, they tore out his beard, they beat him. So he's describing this for them. 
Yes, I'm son of man. Yes, I'm Messiah. Yes, I'm the one that is fulfilling all of these prophecies. And yet, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be maligned. And I'm going to be nailed to a cross like every other malefactor. Well, you can imagine why they just could not believe that. In fact, the previous time that he brought it up, Peter withstood him to his face, said, let that be far from you. And Jesus had to call him Satan to his face and say, you don't care about God's things. You care about earthly things, human things. You don't care about the God stuff. The God things, the God prophecies are that I have to do this. I have to die for you. I have to die for my people. I have to die to accomplish redemption. I have to die to satisfy the judgment and the curse of the law. I have to die. This isn't an option. So, they will mock him. They will spit on him. They will scourge him. They will kill him. And, this is the part they really don't get. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. Unheard of. Three days later. Why three days? We've talked about this before, but in Jewish reckoning, somebody wasn't really dead until they were three days dead. That's why Jesus stayed away from Lazarus' tomb for three days. To guarantee that he was really genuinely, truly dead so that everybody knew that he was really, truly, genuinely dead. So that when Jesus raised him up from the dead, they knew that he was raised up from the really, truly, genuinely dead. Because if you're just sort of dead... For like a day or two, but then you get mostly dead. Yeah, that was Princess Bridie, wasn't it? Yeah. Then at some point, you're going to go see Max the Magician. I know where your brain is at. And and you're you're going to get well. People revived after a day or two, and people would think they were dead. That's a lot of the reason that modern burials include draining the blood out of people and, and embalming them. It's to make sure that before they go into the grave, they're really, truly, genuinely dead. Well, Jesus said, I'm going to be three days dead. Really, genuinely, truly dead. Which, by the way, kind of makes that Friday to Sunday morning thing not work out again. But he said, I'm going to be really, truly, genuinely, fully dead. And then I'm going to rise again. I'll be back. Now, you would think. After that clear an announcement by the very person who has done all these miracles, who did raise Lazarus from the grave, you would think when he said that, that three days after his death, when he actually did rise, you would find 11 guys standing outside the grave. And when he came out, they'd be standing there going, yep, we knew it. You said it. You said it was going to happen. And sure enough, it happened. None, none of them were there. They all scatter. They all run to save their own skin. And in doing so, they satisfy the prophecy we looked at Wednesday night out of the book of Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. This all had to happen. Every bit of it. Down to Peter's denial and their running away. All of that was prophesied. It had to take place. There's no accidents. There's no mistakes. And the closer we get to the cross, you're going to see Mark continue to point out how there are no accidents and how there is nothing happening that is not ordained to happen. 
So, John and James, having heard this statement, I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be killed and then three days later I'm going to rise again. James and John are so taken with it that their minds go immediately to how self-important they are. Look at what happens, verse 35. I don't think it's a mistake that Peter juxtaposed this right up against that previous story because I think this is right how it happened and that's how Mark wrote it down. And John and James, the two sons of Zebedee, came to him saying to him, Rabbi, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Self-importance. That's all they can think. They immediately start thinking about, well, you know, we gave up homes and lands and stuff. And we heard what you said to that rich young ruler, how you said sell everything and come and follow. Well, we've done that. We gave up everything. We left our father. We left our fishing business. And we have followed you. We want to know what we get out of it. So um, maybe right hand, left hand. Sure, you're number one. We're going to allow that you're number one. But we're thinking we ought to be number two and three. Because after all, we're the first apostles you called. We were right there from the very beginning. We've been with you three and a half years. We're thinking we should get the chief seats. Turn over to Matthew for just a moment. Because I I did mention this. And Matthew adds a little detail that I think Mark, writing under Peter's tutelage, I think as Peter told the story, he made John and James directly responsible for it. Whereas Matthew adds the detail about the fact that they got their mother to do it. And I'd I'd like to make a joke about the typical Jewish mother, but I'm going to move on, and I'm not going to do that. But you'll notice she did do it. She didn't say to them, oh, no, that's not right, boys. Starting in Matthew chapter 20, and I'm in verse 20, Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. So they're there, and they're going to let mom do the talking. And bowing down and making a request of him, and he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. So Matthew includes the detail that it was actually mom who did the bidding, but Peter chalks it up to John and James, gives them the personal responsibility And he says it was John and James, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. I'm back in the book of Mark, by the way. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking for. Okay, this is the second time that we've read that Jesus had to say to these two guys, you don't know what you're doing. Do you remember the first time? 
The first time they came to him and said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? You know, we've seen that Elijah could do that. Is that what you want? Call down fire? And Jesus says to them, you don't know what kind of men you are. This isn't what we're here for. We didn't come here to start destroying men. We came here to call men. We came here to redeem men. We didn't come here to call down fire on men. This isn't a judgment thing. This is a salvation thing. Okay, I put a few words in Jesus' mouth there. The point was that they just don't get it, and they don't know what kind of men they are, and Jesus has to keep saying to them, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're saying. And notice this is after three and a half years of walking with him. They're on their way to Jerusalem. He's going to die. We're right at the end of this thing. And they still just don't get it. Okay, so why am I emphasizing this? Because we've seen it time and time again that Mark has taken the time to tell us that these guys don't get it. That Jesus, even after showing miracle after miracle, after showing fulfillment after fulfillment, after showing demonstration after demonstration that he is who he says he is, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of Scripture, for three and a half years they've been walking around seeing these things and they still can't comprehend it, Mark says, because they were blinded to it, because their hearts were hardened to it. Why? Because they're human. And without the grace and spirit of God, no human, no matter how much evidence you give them, can figure it out. They can see the miracles. They can see, according to this, they can see Jesus himself walking, talking, fulfilling scripture, doing miracles, raising people from the dead, making lame people walk opening the deaf ears so they can hear again. They can see all that, but they still can't grasp it. They still can't understand the things that can only be understood when God places his spirit in a person, which then awakens the person, revives the person, enlightens the person, and suddenly they can look at the word of God, comprehend the things of God, and understand that Jesus is actually not just Messiah, but Messiah and Savior and Lord. You can only get that through the Spirit of God, which is why Jesus kept saying, I got to go away, because if I don't go away, then this comforter won't come. But I won't leave you orphans. I won't leave you to yourselves. When I go, I'll send him. And then he says, I'll come to you. So you've got to have the spirit in order to understand the least things of God, even if you in your flesh without the spirit are fed all the evidence. Now you can go online and you can see people talking to atheists and for some reason whenever Christians have a conversation with atheists these days they feel it's necessary that there be a camera I don't, I don't quite get that but so there's all these conversations with atheists online and they do what is called evidential apologetics they make the case they try to make the case that God exists look you've got evidence you've got the stars in the heaven even Paul says that's evidence the universe itself speaks to the glory, the majesty, the makership of God. 
but what does it serve to do according to Paul it doesn't serve to save them it serves to condemn them because everything that can be known is demonstrated in the creation then men are without excuse so all the evidence can do is make you guilty but you of yourself in your flesh no matter how much evidence you're given simply can't come to the conclusion that Jesus is the absolute master and Lord of your life. You'll never reach that point. You'll always be concerned with you first, just like they were. What about me? I need the chief seat. I'm the important one. I need to be served. I don't need to be the serving one. It's just consistent all the way through here because it's consistent of human beings to this very day. The only reason you have faith, the only reason you understand, the only reason you can read the Bible and be moved to tears, the only reason you have any concept of what's going on in the heavenlies is because God has graciously given you his spirit to quicken and enlighten you. He did not leave you to yourself, and that is the reason that Jesus had to tell these very guys after his resurrection, which I would think was enormous proof, he's standing in front of them alive again. After they've seen him crucified and put in a grave, he's standing in front of them and he says to them, now don't go out and preach. Don't go out and start talking about this. He says, wait here until Pentecost. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait here till the Feast of Weeks. Why? Because then the Spirit came. The promise of the Holy Spirit inhabited them, landed on them like tongues of fire. Now they've got the Holy Spirit. Now go preach. Now you're going to remember. Because as Jesus said, the Spirit of truth is going to remind you of everything I said. So don't go out there trusting your own memory. Don't go out there trusting that you've got it down because I know what you're going to do. You're going to go out and you're going to preach yourself. That's what John and James would have done. Look at what they're doing. They're promoting themselves. You know that Peter would have. Mr. Sandal in mouth. You know that he would have said, well, let's start the church. And by the way, I'm the rock and on this rock. This is the whole thing right here. I'm the important one. No, Jesus had to make sure that they were under the conscription, that they were under the governance, that they were under the Holy Spirit of God who would bring to their minds everything that Jesus said so that they could accurately not only write it but preach it and bring Christianity fully orbed to the planet. But don't do it under your own power. But don't do it until the Spirit comes. Stay here, wait here until you are, the word is, until you are imbued with power from on high. Because under your own power, you can't do it. Okay, now, I said all that to say this. Under their own power, they were still completely egocentric, self-involved, what's going to become of me? Under their own power, they still couldn't understand the simplest things about Jesus Simple, clear statements. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. They don't get it. What hope you think you have 2,000 years later? You're 2,000 years removed from those events. You haven't seen those miracles. You haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. You haven't watched any of that. You, and yet, we're being 
ask to believe that human beings under their own power, by their own flesh, can just simply be cajoled into accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior. That if you just make a compelling enough argument, you can convince somebody to come to Christ. If you just show them the evidence, they're going to come to Christ. I love the evidence. I think the evidence is great. I have taught for years on the evidence of the resurrection. To me, that's essential to understanding everything about Christianity. But I can only use that evidence to Christian audiences to build up their faith. If I take those same arguments to people who don't believe, who people who, to people who don't have the Spirit of God, I can use that exact same evidence, and you can tell they don't get it at all. Just flatline, brain death. They have no idea what I'm talking about. The evidence is wonderful for us. The evidence exists because it builds up our faith. We can walk outside, look up at the sky, and see the glory of God. There are people who walk outside, look up at the sky, and somehow see Darwin or something. I I don't get it. So to us, the evidence is essential. But to them, the evidence isn't enough. No amount of evidence you give them is going to work. There has to be the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Only then can people comprehend the least thing about Christ. Because if the 12 couldn't do it, you can't do it. You got my argument? So grant us that we may... Sit one on your right hand and one on your left. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. By the way, the reason that phrase is just so poignant, you don't know what you're asking for, is at the very end of this, he said, it's not mine to give, to sit at my right hand and my left. It is for those for whom it is prepared. Those who are appointed to sit at my right hand and left hand, they're going to sit there. So, again, nothing left to chance. Everything is predetermined. Who's going to be when Christ is sitting right now in his glory in heaven? Who's at his right hand? We know he's at God's right hand. Who's at his right hand? We don't know. But someone is appointed, someone is prepared to sit there at his glorious right and left hand. And so he says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In order to understand that statement, you have to understand how the word baptizo is being used there. Think of it not as baptism like going under the water and being baptized into the name of Christ or something. The word essentially just means immerse. Can you be immersed in what I'm about to be immersed in? Now, what's he talking about? He just said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten. They're going to spit on me, and they're going to hate me, and they're going to kill me. You ready for that? You ready to be immersed in what I'm being immersed in? Now, they may have simply misunderstood or more than likely They didn't know what he was referring to when he said, can you be baptized with what I'm about to be baptized with? 
Because their answer is, oh, yeah, we can do that. Oh, yeah, sure, we got that. Yeah, we're all about that. Whatever you're going to do, we're going to do. We're right with you, Jesus. You're my buddy. You're my homeboy. No matter what you go through, I can go through it with you. Proving that they have no idea what they're talking about. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be killed. He's going to be martyred. And then he's going to rise again. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, that cup of trembling, that cup of pain, that martyrdom that I'm going to go through, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Who was the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred by Herod? James. James. Happened right away. And what's interesting is James and John, the two who said, yeah, we can do it. James is martyred right away. John is the longest living of the apostles. And yet they both die professing Christ and living a life of berating and being driven out from the Jews, and being a threat to the Romans. They do not live a happy, comfortable, fulfilled, name it, claim it life. They live a life under the headship of Christ, and it makes them strangers in this world. And like bookends, James is martyred first, and John is martyred last. Because they said, I think, yeah, we can do that. And Jesus said, okay, you're going to do that. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But now the ultimate irony. This whole conversation was about, can we have chief seats? And he's going to say to them, okay, you're going to go through the same kind of martyr. The same kind of martyrship the same kind of pain, the same kind of difficulty. You're going to be killed the way I'm going to be killed. And, oh, yeah, that seat thing, you don't get that. But you're going to get the pain. But to sit on my right hand or my left, that is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. After hearing this, I think this is a really essential point, Peter's about to tell us through Mark that after the rest of the apostles heard John and James do this, they were angry at John and James. So now we've got a new division among the 12. I think sometimes we get this picture of the 12 as just being compatriots and friends and getting along great. After all, they're with Jesus. They're bickering all the time. They're arguing all the time. Who's going to be greatest among us? Having heard this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now remember what Jesus is doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. He has set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and face the terror that is going to drive him to pray to God until his sweat is like great drops of blood. That's the condition he's in. And these guys, rather than be a help and comfort to him, are bickering. 
So he calls them, verse 42, he calls them to himself. And Jesus said to them, again, how often have we seen this? Again, you know that those who were recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, the unbelievers, those that are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, they make a big to-do of the fact that they are the rulers. You're going to do what I said because I said because I'm the ruler. They lord it over the people that they rule over. And their great men exercise authority over them. That's what the Gentile world is like. You're supposed to be different. But it's not so among you, verse 43. But it is not so among you. In other words, you don't exercise authority over each other. You don't lord it over each other. And so to give them the full example, he says, whoever wishes to become great. That's what they were arguing about. Who's going to be the greatest? And then arguing about who's going to get the chief seats. And then arguing about the fact that they asked for the chief seats. They're bickering, they're fighting, they're arguing with each other. And he says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Not shall be your king, your ruler. Not the way the Gentiles, the unbelievers do it. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you become servant to all. That again ought to ring like don't look on your own things. Look on the things of others. Esteem every man is better than yourself. Recognize your position in Christianity as a servant role. Look, even the language that the Bible uses for leadership within the church is servant language. The word pastor is the word poimen. It's the word for shepherd. Shepherd was not a glorious job in the Middle East. I don't know if you've spent any time around sheep, but not only are they constantly problematic, they don't smell great. Your job is to go look after them, pull them out of ditch. That's a service job. The word for deacon is actually the word for being an under rower. What it means is you're one of the slaves who sits underneath the ship and rows the ship to keep it going. Under rower. That's not a chief job. That's not a I'm superior to you job. That's a job that means I do the work. When Deacons were brought into the church. It was to allow the elders of the church to spend their time in prayer and reading of the word, ministry of the word. And they even said, it's not right that we should leave the ministry of the word to go serve tables. So let's go find some men who can do the table serving part. My point is, these are service jobs. Leadership in the church is all described as service jobs, never as I'm the important guy. So Jesus says to them, it's not supposed to be that way among you, exercising authority over each other. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. That's not just service because it makes you look good. 
I had an argument with a guy years ago about the fact that there's probably no genuine altruism among human beings. Do you know what I mean by the word altruism? People who do the right thing just because it's the right thing, not looking for anything in, re in return. And we argued that maybe true, genuine altruism doesn't exist because everybody who does something good hopes that at least somebody saw it. At least I'm getting something back out of this. If I'm not getting paid, I'm at least getting thanked. I'm getting something out of this. But if you are a slave, if you are owned by somebody else, they don't thank you when you do your work. You do the work because you're the slave. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all of you. That's the way genuine Christianity is described. Verse 45, here's his example. For even the Son of Man, that's himself, did not come to be served. Do you think he deserves to be served? Yes. He could have come to the planet, set up his glorious throne room, and said, now all of you, I'm the important one, you do whatever I say. And he'd be well within his rights to say that. Because he is, after all, the very son of God, which none of you are. So he has the absolute right to say that. And yet, despite the fact that it wasn't robbery for him to see himself as equal with God, nevertheless, he made of himself no reputation and took on the form of a servant. So can he expect you to act that way? Yeah, especially if he did. And to not be that way is nothing but rebellion because he has told you how to be. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's the end of, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise in three days. For what purpose? For what reason? I'm giving my life as a ransom. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down, because it would take actual power to accomplish that considering that he lived the sinless life and death is the result of sin, well, then death has no hold on him because he has no sin. So he actually has to have power in order to accomplish his own death. And then he said, and I have the power to take it up again. And I have this command from my father. He came to give his life a ransom to buy people to himself to buy people off the market of sin, redeem them, own them, and then set them apart as separate for himself, his exclusive use. And if you belong to him for his exclusive use, can he tell you what kind of people you ought to be? Yes. yes. Absolutely. He just told you. He just told you, if you want to be great, serve. Be good to people. Real quick, let's just finish up. I know we 
started late and I hope to get all the way to chapter 11 this morning so I'm just going to do that and I know it's 12 o'clock and I know kickoff is right now and I know some of you are checking your phones no okay <laughs> because this next part is is really important because Jesus is going to Jerusalem he is dealing with these problems within his ranks and he is setting his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem to give up his life he's about to go through the terror of, of not only being beaten by men and being spit on and being treated like a criminal like a malefactor but then on top of that he's going to hang on the cross and he's going to take the wrath of God in the place of his people paying that ransom price that he's there for this is a horrific thing he's about to go through and he knows that and on his way to Jerusalem in the midst of all that and all the crowds and all the worry about what's going to happen one blind man gets his attention and he pays attention I'm going to read this real quick and then we're going to apply it real quick and then we're going to get home and you'll only have missed the first quarter and they came to Jericho they're on their way to Jerusalem they come to Jericho and as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bar Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the first place in the book of Mark where you see the phrase, Son of David. Now that's really important nomenclature too. Because in order to be the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, the one who is going to rule over the collective 12 tribes again, he has to be a descendant of David. The Davidic covenant guarantees that there's going to be a son of David in perpetuity sitting on a throne ruling over Judah. And so it's important if he is the Messiah that he has to be a descendant of David. It takes a blind man sitting by the road by Jericho to point out, you're the son of David. Now when he does ride into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, they're going to cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Because they're recognizing him as the Messiah who they're going to make king. And then of course those very same people who are very excited about the fact that the king is among them are going to end up within a day or two saying crucify him because he didn't do what we wanted him to do he didn't become king how can he be our king and our messiah if he's turned over to the Jews and turned over to the leaders turned over to the Gentiles and now they're going to kill him well all right go ahead kill him he can't be the king he can't well son of David is the nomenclature that identifies him as the one that God has sent to be king over Israel which again is why Pilate would ask him are you king of the Jews? Because that's what they're crying. That's what they're recognizing. And it starts with blind Bartimaeus. Recognizing him, not able to see him, but recognizing that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
and many were sternly telling him to be quiet don't bother him he's busy look at the crowd he's got a lot to do but he kept crying out all the more son of David have mercy on me and Jesus there's an amazing word stopped what's he on his way to do where's he going he's in the middle of one of the most important events in human history and he stopped for one blind man so he stopped and he said call him so they called the blind man saying to him now my translation says take courage arise I don't know what your other translations have there but basically what they're saying is be happy cheer up chin up he's calling you out of all of us it's no mistake that Mark told us that there was a huge crowd with him and Jesus calls that one man and they say to him cheer up he's calling you take courage arise he is calling for you and he's in such a hurry to get to Jesus he stands up and just throws his cloak down just get to Jesus doesn't matter what I leave behind and casting aside his cloak he jumped up and he came to Jesus and answering him Jesus said what do you want me to do for you do you think Jesus was asking for information <laughs> no he knew what he wanted why was Bartimaeus by the side of the road outside of Jericho on the way to Jerusalem at that exact moment? Why was he there? Was he there for his good, his benefit, his welfare? Well, yes, that all came of it, but that's not why he was there. He was there because at this very moment, after Jesus has said, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be killed, he then turned around and demonstrated that absolutely none of his authority or power had been lessened in any way. He was still king of glory. He could still bring sight to blind people. He could still open eyes. And remember the man whose eyes were partially opened and then later completely opened? And we had to go through it and say, Jesus did that in order to teach a lesson to the apostles? I think the same thing here. The apostles are busy bickering about who's the most important. Who's going to get the chief seat? Jesus is the very son of man. He's the very son of David. He is the absolute preeminent one among all of them. And what does he stop on his way to do? Serve somebody. Reach down to somebody. It's an example. And then demonstrate that he's still Lord of glory. I still have all my power, all my authority, and I'm going to be killed. I can put a stop to it whenever I want. I'm laying my life down. And he's still demonstrating that he's God incarnate. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, remember previously, Jesus did things like take up some dust and spit on it. And then between the dust and spittle, rub it on a man's eyes. And then he went through all that to cure the man's eye. You'll notice he does none of that here. The same way that he could just declare that people in a different city were suddenly healed. At this point, he just says to the man, go on, you're fine, you're healed. Go your way. Your faith has made you well, and immediately blind Bartimaeus regained his sight and began following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Two last comments. 
Don't get confused by the phrase, your faith has made you well. The very fact that Bartimaeus heard it was Jesus of Nazareth and cried out to him, son of David, and he knew that he could heal him, have mercy on me, that was faith. He had faith at that moment. He didn't get healed, but he had faith. But his faith brought him to the one who could heal him. The healing, Jesus did. Jesus did the healing because he wasn't healed till Jesus healed him. So Jesus did the healing, but Jesus did the healing in response to the fact that the man had faith in Jesus. So it's not your faith in your faith that heals you. The faith healers who say, just dredge up enough faith, get enough faith going, rev up your own faith, and then you'll get healed, that's not in the Bible anywhere. But faith in Christ, who is the great physician, he may, in response to your faith in him, heal you. And in this lifetime, if you've ever been sick and then got well again, he healed you. Whether he did it through doctors or whether he did it miraculously, he did it. Because one day, you're going to have a disease that is the final disease that takes you out of this life. And then instantaneously, he's going to heal you. And you're going to wake up in glory. There's going to be no more tears and no more sin and no more death and no more dying and no more sickness. And God's going to wipe away every tear you're about as healed as you get. Second point, notice what he did. Immediately after he regained his sight, as soon as he could see, remember previously when we talked about the man who took the two healings to get perfect sight? I said this was an example that Jesus was doing for his apostles. You're not blind, but you don't fully see yet. And then finally perfect sight. I think the same thing here. This is an example. He stopped on the way to Jerusalem for an example, for a lesson, for something that he could demonstrate to his apostles to not only show his own authority, but to show what service really looked like. And then the man had sight. And what's the next thing he did when he had sight? He followed Jesus. That's what the text says. You're going to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. No amount of evidence is going to give you that light. No amount of evidence is going to convince you of the least thing about Jesus or the Bible or God. No amount of evidence can convince you after your flesh. But once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, the Word is enlightened. You're going to be enlightened. You're going to see light. Your eyes are going to see. Your ears are going to hear. And as soon as your eyes see and your ears hear, you're going to follow Jesus. That's what Bartimaeus did. I think that's a lesson not only to the apostles, but to us as well. Not only that if Jesus served, we should serve, but that without the Spirit of God and His kindness and grace to us, we have absolutely no hope or confidence in this flesh because we wouldn't understand anything unless he taught us. Does that make sense? Amen. Okay. Questions? I'm about talked out. A comment. Sometimes my mind moves in strange ways. 
but it says... And you're telling us collectively? Yes. <laughs> so it says the blind man threw off his cloak. When they said, hey, he's calling for you, he throws off his cloak. And I just think to myself, okay, did he go get his cloak before he followed Jesus? And did he have to say, hey, is that my cloak? Because I've never seen it before. <laughs> You're correct. Your mind goes into weird places. But, but yeah, that's right. He'd never seen his cloak. He doesn't know what color it is. Yeah. I was thinking that too, Steve. <laughs> Someday I hope you meet the son of Timaeus in heaven, and you can ask him those questions. Well, I will have enough time to do so. You'll have enough time, and once you get the answer, come report to the rest of us. Okay. I'll have time to do that too. Yes. Anything else? Any other questions or comments? We're good. Well, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.